this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And we have an update for you today on the Year of the Woman. Year of the Woman. It's actually good news this time. Oh, good. That's always fun. (laughs) Women are winning big in primaries all over the country. I don't know if it's too soon to actually declare this the Year of the Woman, but it's looking pretty good. Mm Mm-hmm. Of the 92 women who participated in the eight primaries back in early June, at least 36 of them have emerged victorious. Women are likely to be elected as governor for the first time in Iowa and South Dakota, and for the first time in nearly five decades in Alabama, according to Gender Watch 2018, a project of the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers University. Women are also poised to make significant progress in House races. Iowa, for example, may elect its first ever congresswoman, and New Mexico may elect the country's first Native American congresswoman, Deb Holland. More than 500 women have so far filed to run for office in primaries this year, according to the Center for American Women in Politics. And that number represents a 67% jump from 2016. Most of the women running are Democrats, although one-third of Republican women running have also won their races. And here are just a few. Stacey Abrams won her primary for Georgia governor, besting Stacey Evans. If she wins, she'll be the first black female governor in the United States. Yeah, and another great person to mention is Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. So just less than a year ago, the 28-year-old was working at a bar in New York, actually above the Avaz Human Rights Organization offices. And my friend would go there all the time and see her. So shout out to her working in the bar below Avaz. Um, But she was just 28, working in a bar, had never run for public office before, And she ran and won her primary in New York's 14th district. She took down longtime Rep. Joe Crowley, who had not had a primary challenger in 14 years. So that is huge. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. He played uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. (laughs) That was such an interesting— Looks like he was born to lose. Just kidding, just kidding. (laughs) She is the first woman of color to run in the district, which encompasses parts of Queens and the Bronx. And she also won in a landslide. She won 57.5% of the vote while Crowley had just 42.5%. Yeah, she's kind of a rad lady. She's a socialist, and she has a super progressive platform, including Medicare for All and canceling all student debt. And I wanted to include her because I think if you're thinking you want to run for office, but you don't have the experience, the money, whatever, think about Alex. She was working in a bar less than a year ago and had no experience running for office. And she ran on a real lefty progressive platform, and she won her primary. Yeah. So she can do it. Yeah. You can do it. It's inspiring stuff. Let's hope that this does prove to be the year of the women and we have many more stories like this to tell in the future. But in the meantime, we thought we'd give you this update. And today I am so excited to ask a prediction question as we look at the new year rolling out before us. Will 2018, especially the election cycle of 2018, produce another so-called year of the woman? That's the compelling question we want to, dare I say, unpack today. (laughs) And we're going to be joined by a friend of mine, a really awesome guest who you'll hear from later this episode. But first, let's talk about what that means. The year of the woman. What is that? Perhaps you've heard this term thrown around. And perhaps you know that it refers to 1992. 
1992, women tripled their numbers in the Senate, which sounds awesome. Until you look at the fact that we went from having two senators as women serving out of 100 U.S. senators to a whopping six. And actually, Barbara Boxer penned an op-ed for USA Today that kind of looked back almost sheepishly on 92 being called the Year of the Woman. I mean, she was part of the Year of the Woman in 92 when she and Dianne Feinstein became the first two female senators elected from any one state. And yes, she acknowledges they tripled their numbers in the Senate, but going from two to six out of 100 is not exactly something to brag about. Looking back on it, she says, calling 92 the Year of the Woman was an overstatement, and after much hype, Everyone focused on other things. I can see how you would be really, really excited, thinking, yeah, women are going to do this. This is our time. And then being like, what happened, y'all? I thought this was our year. Like, we went from a small number to another small number and sort of feeling a little bit underwhelmed. That's why I really, really hope that 2018 actually will be a resurgence of the Year of the Woman. And there's reason to draw a parallel there as well. Despite its modesty, the year of the woman in 92 was still historic. And what's interesting in terms of looking at the parallels of today is that it followed Professor Anita Hill going public with her story of humiliation and verbal abuse at the hands of her then boss, Clarence Thomas, during his confirmation hearings to become a sitting member of our Supreme Court. And looking at movements like Me Too, it does seem like a similar trajectory where we are following this wave of women speaking out about their experiences with sexual misconduct and men in powerful positions. And if you look at the last primary and election cycle, it does seem like a little bit of a hopeful moment yeah. for a reckoning. A pow- It's like a powder keg. And what's interesting is today, the hashtag Me Too is demonstrating that we are actually listening to and believing women who are speaking out about this stuff, as opposed to Anita Hill's case, which did lead to the confirmation of Clarence Thomas being a member of our Supreme Court, almost like the commander-in-chief of ours that we have at the moment being ushered into the halls of power despite bragging about sexual assault. And back in 92, the senators who were grilling Professor Hill and really producing kind of a character assassination during the Clarence Thomas trials, they prohibited three other women from testifying who would have corroborated Anita's story and treated her with disrespect from both sides of the aisle. That led to understandable outrage and anger on behalf of a lot of women in our country, which led to that historic, though modest, doubling in 92 And doesn't that feel like the powder keg and the moment of reckoning that we are in right now, of righteous anger provoking revolution? God, I hope so. (laughs) We've been waiting for long enough. I'm really hoping this is the moment that women all stand up and use our powerful voices, and those voices are heard and believed and listened to. Exactly. Sadly, the number of women who've been holding public office has held pretty steady in recent years, barely breaking the 20% mark, even though we represent, obviously, 50-plus percent of the U.S. population. But a lot of experts agree that the conditions are ripe for a significant increase in 2018, especially as more politicians are forced to step down or retire amid the growing Me Too movement. We've already seen four congressmen announce plans to retire or not seek re-election following allegations. And that doesn't even include Senator Al Franken, who immediately stepped 
down, whether or not he really wanted to, right? Yeah. What this really says to me is something I've been getting on my high horse about on this show a lot, which is that we need more women and less men to have these kinds of things be combated. And I really hope that this is the reckoning moment where more women start saying, hey, maybe give us a chance for a while to see if we can do a better job of running this stuff because all these men can't seem to keep it in their pants long enough to even get the chance to. <laughs> a lot of experts are seeing more women throw their hat into the ring and plan to run for office this year than ever before. And it's not just Democrats that we're talking about here. First-time Republican and Libertarian women candidates are also jumping into the mix. In fact, Republicans launched an effort back in 2012 that's focused on specifically electing more women. It's called the Right Women Right Now program. And since the initiative was started, 390 new GOP women have been elected. So we know that the numbers are far imbalanced when it comes to women's equal representation in this country, including on the local level. Only 25% of state legislators are women. So we want to take a closer look at not only how the conditions are even better now than they were in 92 for more women to get elected on the local and federal level, but some of the organizations behind equipping women with the skills to run for public office and win. And we're going to talk to our good friend, Erin Velarde, from Vote Run Lead after this quick break and a word from our sponsors. And we're back, and we are so excited to be joined by Erin Velarde, the founder, CEO, and executive director of Vote Run Lead, a national nonprofit leveraging technology and training to accelerate the number of women across the political spectrum in civic and political leadership. Erin, thank you so much for joining us for today's conversation. Thank you. So as Bridget and I are looking at 2018, we are asking ourselves, is this going to be another year of the woman, a la 1992, a la post Anita Hill. How do you think this year is shaping up in terms of the women you're training to run for office and get more engaged in politics? I think the year of the woman has a lot of similarities to what we're going to see in 2018, but I think there's some unique comparisons that we also need to be aware of. One of the first things that happened in 1992 was that there were tons and tons of open seats, meaning that women weren't running against incumbents. They were actually running against, you know, someone who was also probably running for that seat for the first time. So there's a huge advantage there. And that's something we need to really look at closely in our democracy. How many actually open seats are there going to be? Now, gerrymandering and redistricting is critically important because that has actually made seats really safe where incumbents are getting reelected over and over again. And an incumbent is someone who's just sitting in that seat and is eligible to run again. So that's one of the things that's a big differentiator is that there likely aren't going to be the same number of open seats, though you are beginning to see some serious retirements happen. Um, and that will help. So, you know, I've been kind of hilariously doing a national call to men to retire. <laughs> so they can go right ahead and retire. That'd be really great. It will really help us with 1992 repeat. But in the, you know, a lot of similarities in the sense that women are pissed off. And they're looking around and going, how did we get these systems this way in which, you know, we're not able to get justice, in which people are getting away with things that um, are slowing down our careers, are keeping us under, you know, a thumb and when it comes to public policy, and they're seeing power. Um, and they're looking at politics again in a way that says, hey, I can do that. Um, and that's, I think, what 1992 saw. So you won't see the same jumps, which were like doubling and tripling, doubling in the Senate, but that was only like something like 
to six or eight, right? right. So you're not going to see 20 go to 40. Um, so you won't see the same kind of percentage jumps, but you will, I, I think, see um, a larger increase also in the number of women of color who are running for Congress. And, um, you know, that was something that was a positive coming out of the 2016 elections was also the number of women of color in, in Congress and in the Senate. I'm curious, why do you think that is? I, I've been so, so excited to see more women of color and what feels like a more inclusive political uh, climate. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that's been part of this moment? Two reasons. I think that women of color are stepping up in a way that, um, one, the march was a very visible um, and honest assessment where uh, the leadership of the women's movement like skipped a generation. So we went from the sort of, you know, Gloria Steinem era to all of a sudden we had women in their 20s and 30s running this movement. Women like which Bridget think, Todd over yes, here, who exactly. is a part of the digital team for the uh, march on Washington, the women's march last year. And the generational stuff is huge. Like the, the younger women just get it in a different way. Um, maybe it's because, you know, we were raised by different moms. Maybe it's because culturally we've seen a lot more like women and women of color in TV and films. You know, I don't, there's a lot of reasons for it, but like we are just coming at this like, yep, we got this. Trust us. We can do it. Yeah, we know it's going to be hard, you know, and I'm going to bring along this like diverse coalition with me. So I think there's really something about that generational shift where we kind of miss that in like feminist literature about young women. And we know this about millennials. You know, we're much, we have much more diverse groups of friends. We're open to, you know, we're much more open to gay marriage before our, you know, older counterparts. Um, and I think women's organizations are also getting a good kick in the butt to say, nope, you know, you have, I've got to see a diverse board. I've got to see a diverse team around inclusion of women of color. This cannot be just like one of the things that's part of your, you know, talking points. It's got to be deeply ingrained in your strategy. Um, groups like the Ms. Foundation are only funding women of color led organizations. And it's awesome. Um, and it makes for, we, we know this from, you know, 30 years of research that diverse bodies actually make better leadership decisions. And I think the women's community is taking that to heart. I love that so much. And I just, I, I completely agree. And I've been thrilled to see not even just in electoral politics, but like you were saying, in the advocacy space, in the media space, kind of a willingness to pass the mic to younger women, women of color, uh, trans women. I was so, so pumped mm -hmm. in the last Virginia primary, Danica Rome, the first trans woman to win. Like, that was a huge, huge thing. And mm -hmm. I've just been so thrilled to see that this generation of feminists is saying, our feminism is inclusive. Our feminism includes women of color. Our feminism includes women that have been traditionally marginalized. And we are going to go forward with a very inclusive and diverse coalition and kick some ass. I wonder what your take is on the Alabama Senate race then. Because whereas it was exciting to see Roy Moore, basically a child molester, accused child molester, go down in a state like Alabama, despite the full support and endorsement of a lot of the Republican infrastructure and our sitting president. But when you look at the exit polls, when you look at the numbers, white women, just like they supported Donald Trump, were very comfortable, frankly, supporting a, a candidate like Roy Moore. And had it not been for women of color, that's how that election would have shaken out. So I wonder, you know, are we going to see in 2018 women as any kind of a cohesive voting block across racial lines? Or is it really white women who are still not necessarily um, voting based on, on gender issues at all? 
I think that that second part is true, Emily, that you have, you still have whole generations and whole groups of women who do not see power in womanhood. And they are, they see power in partisan politics. They see power in their husband's identities, you know, around his economic well-being, um, the attachment to the family. Um, and, you know, as we, we do a lot of work in rural communities and the good news is there's a lot of amazing feminist women in rural communities and they are doing this really quiet social justice work that is just keeping their communities together, which is fantastic. The hard part is, is that there's no feminist dialogue out there without them like cutting new ground. Um, and so you are, you have these women who are surrounded by and given tons of messages that are like, you know, how dare you vote for Hillary Clinton? Yeah. Or, you know, I got emails that were like, my mom can't tell my dad she's voting for Hillary Clinton. Um, that, you know, it's just, and so when you do an assessment of your personal power, your woman power is not even making top five. Um, and so we've got to figure out how we, and I think the Me Too movement is part of this. It's like how we really make sure that feminism and this movement is including those women, although sometimes we want to like shake them right, right. <laughs> in a way that's like, what's going on? Um, because you, once I think we start to put some cracks there, you know, you saw, which was awesome, the head of the Young Republicans, which is a woman, she bowed out pretty quickly about not endorsing Roy Moore and that the young, you know, she could no longer, she said that publicly, she went out on Twitter for that. Um, and so I'm also really curious about what would it take to get some younger Republican women, some younger Republican women of color I know are working on this, trying to figure out how they, you know, reshape the party from the inside out. So we've got to make sure that when we're talking about diversity and the intersectionalness of this movement, that we're also, you know, taking a look at some of our conservative sisters and saying, where can we, you know, where can we align? And where is it that I can help bring you along? Because I just think, like, you will be more powerful in this sisterhood. I love it. I love that, too. Yeah, I would like to think that child molestation, <laughs> albeit, like, yeah. a legend, but in my mind, I was like, oh, what woman could support this? And I remember watching, like, an interview of all these older women saying things like, oh, I would have been thrilled if that was my daughter. Yeah. I mean, I think comes in the crazies, like, we got to just let them go. Like, there's no, <laughs> we're not going to get them, you know? There's a certain percentage of folks where you, like, no, if the, I, we firmly disagree on, you know, predatory child molestation and behavior. So we're going to have to draw the line there. There's probably not a lot of room for us to work together. I like that as a tactic, knowing where there's not even a, a reason to sort of expend your energy trying to flip these people to get them on our side, knowing where it's a lost cause and saying, there actually are people on the right that we, it's worth it to start building some coalitions and some intersections with, but then also knowing when that's just not going to happen. That's what I love about the work you're doing with Vote Run Lead, right? You are a nonpartisan organization. Is that correct? Yeah. And, and having trained more than 26,000 women to run for political office, you've got a huge, diverse program running in urban and rural parts of our country. And I think that's a really important perspective to bring to this conversation. I want to talk about how you teamed up with She Should Run and Marie Claire. Tell us about the research you did together in serving 750 potential women candidates to learn more about what they're looking for in reclaiming some of their power in, in this election cycle. What was really fun when when Reclaire uh, approached Vote Run Lead and she should run on why women, you know, why millennial women want to run for office is um, 
what we need actually ran a bunch of Twitter ads to make sure that we were getting outside of our, you know, email lists of, you know, women who, um, you know, might already be inclined to run. Mm-hmm. So close to half of the women, or I think it's a little more than half of the women, were thinking about running before public, before the November 16 election. So there was this sort of like inspiration. They were thinking about it. It was on their mind. Um, they strongly believe that more women, that there is a gendered component to leadership, that more women make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty evenly split around like the motivation. Like some have been asked to run by others, but they just don't like the direction that the country is going in. And they totally like overwhelmingly, it was close to like a hundred percent, just hands down feel that women are not treated well in public life. So they know they're stepping into an environment where they're not going to get a fair shake, you know, but what I thought was probably the most interesting of this was money. 56% of them said, what's kind of the biggest factor for you? Like, are you tackling issues? You know, are you concerned about what your platform might be? And they said 56% of them want to know how to make a living, which is something that Vote Run Lead knows a lot about. We, where we, target a lot of low-income communities and make sure that, you know, not just along racial and ethnic lines, but that we're making sure that folks can run for office, you know, don't have to be millionaires to do it. Um, And that's, you know, how do I make a living? How do I talk to my boss? You know, I can't use this campaign finance money for putting food on the table, but I've got to leave my job every day at three o'clock to go door knock or to, you know, stand outside the subway at five when rush hour starts. Yeah. So really figuring that out, um, about how we do this and incorporating this into our really busy lives. So that was one of the, the more interesting findings for me coming out of the Marie Claire. Um, and I'm so glad to see Marie Claire and Cosmopolitan and In Style, like all these magazines getting political, which is awesome. We'll hear more from Aaron after this quick break. And we're back. Let's get right back to Aaron. I remember reading somewhere that when Trump took office, and I know that y'all are a, a bipartisan organization, but when Trump took office, that it didn't matter if you were a fashion magazine or a food magazine, all of those things were political now, and that we really owe it to ourselves as folks in the media to acknowledge that and say, it doesn't matter if, you know, you are a food writer, now you're a politics writer. And I also think it's important to acknowledge something that we talk about in our episode around Teen Vogue, is that women's magazines have really always led the way in fierce political reporting. And it's not just now that women's magazines are embracing it, but women's magazines have always sort of been at the forefront of intersections of, you know, not just fashion, glamour, entertainment, but real hard-hitting journalism around politics and, you know, activism. I agree. And I think we're seeing things where it used to show up in the style section, actually showing up on the front page. um, And that shift, you know, even though half of the men who have been, you know, the major players in covering the presidential election turned out to all be part of the, <laughs> the uh, Me Too perpetrators, yeah. right? We still, creep and, you know, and there's some remarkable women, one of being Rebecca Tracer with New York Magazine, who is just writing the hardest hitting stuff. I really love her um, analysis where she's really connecting the dots around um, people sort of coming out and speaking out with a public voice. Um, why more women are running for office, you know, the connections of all of this around power. And that when there's a sense of powerlessness, um, you you have nothing else to lose. And so, yep, I'm going to speak publicly. Yep, I'm going to, you know, share with 30 million followers that I, I too was sexually harassed or assaulted. Um, and yes, I've decided to run for office, even though this is something I never thought I would do in my career. It really comes back to owning the power in the in women's voices and the 
and just sort of the ability to speak up because people did people weren't really doing that before, right? Like if you if these if you had these stories, you maybe didn't feel like you could come forward and be believed. And I think in I think it's all connected. The idea that women are feeling like, you know what, I can run for office, I can make a change, and feeling empowered in that way is connected to this whole Me Too thing where women are saying, you know what? I've got a story to tell and I'm going to tell it and people are going to listen. I think they're all interconnected with this idea that women are finding their voices and finding their power and speaking up and we're being listened to and being heard and we're taking what's ours. In a way that we haven't in the past. And especially true to me is this difference between how Anita Hill was treated leading up to with that trial against Clarence Thomas, right? Anita Hill was cast aside. Quite frankly, she was not treated fairly. And that was the beginning of sexual assault in the workplace, in the political domain, being put on the national stage. And yeah, it led to a year of the woman, but those numbers were easy to double because they were so low. So I I wonder, given the very palpable difference in the public response to women's stories and women sharing the reality of the persistent climate of harassment and assault that women have to deal with. Now that we're actually being taken seriously and not cast aside, do you feel like we're going to see major differences? Mm. Do you feel like more women are running because they feel like, A, they have nothing to lose, or B, that they're more likely to be listened to now than ever before? A few things. One, more women are definitely going to run, uh, but that also means that more women are going to lose. Right. So what we have to remember is that these in these crowded primaries, we have to make sure that we're not just giving the nomination in a, you know, particularly a Democratic primary to some progressive, right? So when there's two or three really qualified women, um, I'm thinking of this woman, Linda Weber in New Jersey, who's running, who definitely had a crowded primary. I'm not sure if people have bowed out since I last talked to her, but, you know, these young, I worked on the Obama campaign, I came back home, I want to run for office, crap. Meanwhile, like, you know, 30-year resident, small business owner, feminist, like definitely most qualified person. And then what we see is the local parties saying, I'm going to like, I'm going to wait out the primary. That's, we need to hold the parties accountable to that when there are qualified women in a crowded primary. So that's one of the things we can do before like November elections come up. Um, I think the number of donations going to women candidates is going to rise. I would, you know, I, I love me some Emily's list, but I would be definitely putting that money directly to candidates because, you know, Emily's List is also an old dog, been around a long time, and they're going to take safer bets. And so we have to really be looking at long shot candidates and directly contributing to their campaigns. Um, and they've been a little slow around some talented women of color where, you know, I think they're going to get better in 2018 with putting the money there. So if we're smart about, um, you know, finding folks in, you know, states that we care about and making sure that we're directly donating to those women. Um, but I think where you're going to see huge surge and where Vote Run Lead is specializes is local and state office. I think you're going to see state legislatures have, you know, three, four, maybe six percentage point bumps in the number of women who are in those legislatures. Um, I think you're going to see more women's commissions in the 50 states or, you know, bipartisan commissions at the state legislative level. I think you're going to see more women lead state legislatures as, you know, majority leader or as speaker of the state house. And that's where you actually get to then look at policy. And a state like Colorado that has something close to 50% women in the legislature, we 
one of our alumni is actually the uh, speaker of the house, um, young Latina lawyer, super dynamic. She should run for higher office soon. That's where you see things like paid equity getting passed. That's where you see, you know, these 10 point legislative plans that are good for women and families because there's a tipping point when you see more women at the local level. And that's where we're going to get to innovate. So I would also encourage folks to look at who's running for your state ledge, who's running for your city council and making sure that you're giving them the 10 bucks or $25 donations too. I love it. So let's say you have a listener out there who is listening. She's so fed up with how things are going down in her community. She wants to run for office. What would you tell her? Sure. One, go to voterunlead.org, obvi. <laughs> um, we have something called the 90-day challenge, which if you've never been in politics before, or even if you have a little bit of you know, civic experience, the 90-day challenge was written by local elected officials in the Vote Run Lead Network, and it gives you 30 actions to take in 90 days. So it's like getting out and meeting your community, having a conversation with, um, you know, uh, political people, starting your own Twitter account, coming researching what your top issues are. And if you can tackle like two thirds of that list, you are going to build your political capital within your community by, you know, letting folks know you're interested in running, or you can also write an email that says, I'm interested in public service. Can I have a coffee with you? So it's a, it's a roadmap for IRL, like politics is in real life. So this 90 day challenge is free on our website. If you don't know what you're going to run for yet, we've got also more local electeds talking about what office should I run for? So if this is what I care about, these are the issues that are important to me, where do those issues get legislated? You know, it might be that you want to be on a commission and get an appointment because of your, you know, you're looking at your life and you're kind of busy um, and you can't make it back and forth to the Capitol, you know, whatever it may be. So we've got to think about two workshops that are free online, what office should I run for, and the 90-day challenge that are great for people who want to just get their brain moving and say, okay, I'm thinking about running, I'm thinking about running. Um, if you know you're running and you want to run in 2018, we've got like campaign plans for running in 2018 that maps out a timeline for you. You know, what's a campaign finance plan, which is kind of the thing that trips up a lot of folks. That's where the legal stuff happens. So both of those resources are also available and everything's at boatrunley.org backslash learn. Awesome. And you've got an event coming up this month, right? In in uh, On the anniversary of the Women's March. Am, am I remembering that correctly? That's right. January 20th, we're going to be in New York City with uh, hopefully a couple hundred women. And just that, for women who want to run, as well as women who want to support other women. And we're going to be talking about sex, politics, and power, and this connection between the MUTU movement and political participation. And um, hopefully Senator Gillibrand will be there. Rebecca Traster will be there. Um and, you know, just giving folks after the pr- probably very cold March, yeah, um, <laughs> giving folks, you know, come have a glass of wine, some hot chocolate, get warm, get some food and get connected to other remarkable women in your network. You know, this reminds me a lot of my time as a community organizer working on behalf of the Obama administration back in 2009, after really being trained by Obama's campaign and getting some training from Marshall Gans. We were able to and really equipped with the skills to create power structures, to create power structures and community organizations that would outlast us. And one of the things I will remember the most about my time, about two years I spent organizing across the state of Rhode Island, is that when I left— some of my neighborhood team leaders, women, mind you, ran for office on the local level and won, upsetting an incumbent Democrat in the process. And one of my other neighborhood team leaders ran her campaign. And there is nothing like that ripple effect of seeing women in male-dominated spaces 
harnessing their power, growing their power and influence, and making that connection between the issues that they want to make progress on and their ability to grow their power and and be a part of that change. So I'm yeah. so excited and so motivated to hear of all the work that Vote Run Lead is doing on the local level, especially. Um, and I can attest to the resources you provide um, as being some of the best that's out there. So thanks for the work you're doing on this front, Erin. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to let you guys in on a little secret. It's not that hard to run for office. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I used to say this, the talent pool is shallow. <laughs> Yeah. And that's yeah. the reality, right? Like amateur right. hour if you don't show up. If if yeah. if the right people don't show up, someone will. Totally. That reminds me. One of my favorite stories out of the last election cycle was the story of a woman whose uh, elected official had made a joke about the the women's march and he said something like, "Oh, are they walking to make me a sandwich or these women could sure use a walk to lose some weight. And that that one joke angered her so much that she ran against him and won. So these stories of this small little thing where, you know, it's just that one crystallizing moment where you're like, I'm going to unseat that fucker. You, maybe you could. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. Ashley Bennett from New Jersey. Right. Exactly. So like such a good, that was my favorite story of the. That's one of the best stories. Yeah. It really is. So good. Well, thank you so much for having me. You both are doing awesome work, and I'm really excited to be a part of this podcast. Thank you so much, Erin. And for folks who want to keep up with your Twitter feed, where might they find you on the Twitters? At Erin Velarde and at Vote Run Lead. We are so fired up and ready to run, basically, or at least ready to donate to your campaigns, Mindy Listener. If you're running for office in your community this year, there is good reason to be optimistic, to be fired up, and to make this the year of the woman, and perhaps the year of you, the woman, to run for office or support your local girl gang in doing so. I actually want to close this out in the words of Barbara Boxer herself, who's since retired from the Senate, but penned this excellent op-ed for USA Today. In comparing 2018 to the 92 iteration of the Year of the Woman, here's what she writes. Quote, So why am I hopeful that this time may be different? Because it feels different. Mainly because the majority of Americans believe the victims. The Senate race in Alabama where Democrats, Republicans, and independent voters said no to an accused molester sent shockwaves through the body politic. The firing of many private sector powerful men in the news and entertainment industries is more proof The resignation of politicians is even more proof. She goes on to say, It is time to end this epidemic that has been hurting people for far too long. We can do this. As Martin Luther King Jr. said in 1963, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And this is one of those times. 2018, we have a choice to make as a country. We have a choice as women in this country as to whether we can tolerate sitting on the sidelines one more time. I don't know if any of y'all have buyer's remorse after last election cycle, but I certainly do, and I want to be a more active member of my community, whether it's getting out and organizing, knocking on way more doors, donating to campaigns of local women who are running, or running myself someday. Who knows? But I want to see this community get out, vote at a minimum, 
but really make sure that women are being elected in the highest offices of the land and our very backyard local offices too. I couldn't agree more. I hope that somebody out there listening is called to action because we need y'all. If anyone's ever told you, you know, you should run for office, I hope that this really speaks to you and makes you think, yeah, maybe I should. Because just like Aaron said, maybe it turns out it's a lot more easy than you might be thinking. Maybe there's actually toolkits and support for you out there. And if you're thinking that way, we really want to hear from you. Let us know. Will you be running for office? Have you always wanted to run for office? Is there a woman in your life that you wish would run for office because she'd make a really good public office holder? Let us know on Instagram at Stuff I'll Never Told You, on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast, or a good old-fashioned email at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.